and welcome to the LARB Radio Hour, brought to you by reader-supported LA Review of Books. I'm your host, Kate Wolf, and I'm joined by my co-host, Eric Newman. Hello, Kate. Hi, Eric. And this week, we're listening to an interview that you and I did with the very, very amazing Nell Zink about her new novel, Avalon. What did you like about this book, Eric? I mean, I really enjoy uh, Nell Zink's humor, you know, that kind of deadpan, which definitely is on display here. I think I also really liked seeing the Southland or kind of um, Southern California represented in a way that was both familiar to me. You know, I, I asked her about these great details of like kind of scrubbing the tar off of your feet when you get out of the ocean in Southern California, which is a, a detail that only somebody who has spent lots of real time in Southern California will be able to, to give you. But also, I love a kind of coming of age story. And this is a particularly unique one that orbits around being enthralled to a particular kind of intellectual guy or a wannabe intellectual guy whom you just find so captivating, especially when you're younger and your 20s, but which I think the book reveals to be just as problematic and frustrating as like you, the later you finds out that that guy actually is. Right. Have you fallen for a guy like that? Yes. I always, you know, I would say I'm definitely always in, in telesexual or sapiosexual. You know, I love like anybody that can sustain like a really interesting conversation. And I mean, this is why I married my husband because he's smarter than me. Like, and I need somebody that is smarter than me, you know, that that challenges me and pushes me. I find that incredibly attractive and appealing. Mm, yeah, but sounds like he's also a, a good guy. Yes, also, yes, Dan would be the last person that I would say is like an intellectual imposter. You know, he kind of very much calls that kind of stuff out and has no time for it. Mm, nice, well, good catch. <laughs> Thank you. You're welcome. Okay, well, doesn't seem like the character in um, Avalon is quite as lucky as you, but... Right, but she could be. I think she's, you know, what's great about this story is it really opens out into finding your place in the world, which I think on, on the one hand, this protagonist is, is discovering this in her kind of late teens, early 20s. But I think reading it, you're reminded of how much all of us at various ages are constantly reevaluating who we are, what we want, and where we're going. And so I think in some ways there's a kind of timelessness or a timeless appeal to the coming of age story. Well said. Well, let's listen to that interview and hear what Nell has to say. Let's do it. We're extremely excited to have author Nell Zink with us on the line today, patching in across oceans and time zones from her home outside of Berlin. Nell is the author of The Wall Creeper, Mislaid, Private Novelist, Nicotine, and Doxology, one of the literary world's favorites for her uniquely funny and deeply probing fiction. She joins us today to talk about her latest novel, Avalon. The book is a coming-of-age novel of sorts, centered on Bran, a young woman whose parents both abandoned her as a child, leaving her to fend for herself on a Southern California farm where she helps raise and sell exotic plants while steering clear of the biker gang that also calls the farm home. It's not a great life, but it's the one that Bran knows. That is, until she meets Peter, a college student thick on theory and philosophy. The two share a by turns tortured and sweet romance that helps Bran imagine and move into a world of writing and possibility that promises the very escape she's been looking for and a journey to a new life that's just on the horizon. Welcome to the show, Nell. We're so thrilled to have you. 
Thank you. And thanks for that stunningly accurate description of the book. I'm blown <laughs> away. That doesn't happen all the time. I was worried for a second that it was going to sound like some kind of beach read or like, you know, a summer romance, which it actually is in some ways, but we'll get to that in a second. Summer romance with a Dickensian twist. <laughs> yeah. I mean, when a publisher places it at the end of May, you know what they're thinking. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, in the way that the novel is so free and fun, like startling at times, and it seems to just have so much energy of its own, I could see reading it on a beach because it has some of the spirit of that. But I wondered to start just where these characters came from. I know that in the bio, it says that you used to live in Southern California. If you started with the setting, did you start with Bran and being an orphan? Where was the germ of this book for you? I think the germ was that kind of guy. And I have gotten some very, very impassioned, like informal positive reviews from people, especially women in academia who have known this guy. <laughs> so I, you know, I thought I need to really immortalize this guy because he's not the same as like guys in other books. And, you know, I've known a couple of these guys and there's one I know very, very well insofar as it is possible to know these guys because they're so withholding. They're like flirting on a higher metaphysical level. <laughs> Nobody knows what's in there. It's kind of started with the desire to talk about a story like that, what this being forced into a platonic love affair where you think it's going to be so simple. And it's sort of like in Freudian analysis where the, the therapist in the old days just completely refuses to have sex with you, even though you're in love with your therapist almost automatically, and it's called the transference. And someone is nice to you when you're suffering, you fall in love and you think, well, what should I do with this person? I guess I should put them in my mouth. You know, like it's just so simple and kind of tragic and ridiculous. So there's that. And at the same time, falling in love is the most beautiful feeling. And I love paradoxical stuff. <laughs> I just do. Falling in love with just... the wrong person is just the most wonderful wonderfully paradoxical situation. And Peter is not all that wrong. He helps her. Well, maybe you could just describe Peter a little bit because yes, certainly this was a very, very familiar character mm -hmm. to me. Oh. Um, and I feel like I've, I've fallen in love with many a, a Peter and been frustrated. So maybe you could tell us a little bit more about him and how you were imagining him. Well, after I wrote the book... I read like an excerpt from some new book by Mark McGurl, who's a critic, and he was talking about the hero of romantic comedy, who is always so elusive, just doesn't want to put out, you know, unlike men in real life, but, but not all men are like that, you know. <laughs> With most men, I used to say, I mean, oh yeah, here I could say something terribly off color and make your listeners happy. I used to actually make the joke that if you expressed interest in sex to a man, like for every 30 seconds he hesitated, you could take like half an inch off the length of his penis. And if he, <laughs> and if he <laughs> hesitated for three minutes, <laughs> you knew there was not much going on <laughs> down there. Yet not all men are like that. They really aren't. There's more than one kind of man. It's not such a consistent genre. And these 
very intellectual boys, very cerebral with their head in the clouds, with nice but strict parents, like right-thinking parents who, however, have trained them to the point where if there's a plate of cookies on the table when they get home at night, they don't take a cookie. They wait until there's an adult around so they can ask whether they can have a Mm. cookie. And they can be living their lives like that at the age of 25. Have I described Peter yet or am I just getting deeper and deeper into the mud? (laughs) You know what I I find interesting about their relationship? It's very much being in a relationship with that guy that you're talking about, right? That guy in your first grad seminar or your advanced level philosophy class in undergrad, like who, you know, knows everything and is very dazzling in that way. And feeds on female attention. That's the key thing. Yes, they because they don't usually get it elsewhere. But in, right, they in don't, the world they want of attention thought, they that do. When they find a girl who's a sucker for intellectual topics, they're like, wait a second, I can get her staring at me for like minutes at a time by talking <laughs> about this thing she wants to know about, which is you know, not the story of nerdy men's lives usually. <laughs> they struggle so much in their youth. I mean, the nerdy guys clean up when they're 40, then they're all rich and like suddenly wandering around with trophy wives, but they have tough, rough going at the start. But you know what's interesting to me is that Bran is not, she doesn't really have the wool over her eyes. Like there's from the very beginning, so she has both like, she's very smart herself, but she also has a real, I guess what we might call street smarts. Like she's able to read people, I think really well. And from the very beginning of her relationship with Peter, she knows that in your words that he's fucking with her, right? She's like, I know that I was being fucked with. She says this many times throughout their kind of tumultuous relationship. And she also kind of likes it. So can you talk a little bit about that appeal that it's like she she knows that maybe this relationship isn't totally transparent or totally equal or honest maybe in a certain way i think consciously she knows how little affection i mean she comes to realize how little affection she's gotten how little open affection that people have not i mean to really fuck with somebody to manipulate them you have to focus attention on them and so she's feeding on his attention just as he's feeding on hers And because he is, he changes, but at the beginning, he's just terrified of her because he thinks being mixed up with someone like her is going to derail his life. It isn't that he thinks she's a bad person or a meth head or anything actually bad. He just thinks she's going to pull him back down in the world of status which is a very petty bourgeois concern, but he is just from at the beginning of the book, sort of proudly, resolutely petty bourgeois, as Mm. though he's playing a game with himself of going through the motions of living the life his parents have told him to live that's expected of him and taking it to an extreme. Like I said, very cerebral, thinking things through and then acting rather than doing what most people do, which is acting and then rationalizing it retrospectively. It's interesting to hear that Peter was the kind of what generated the book because it it also so much focuses Brand's perspective in everything. I mean, obviously she is the main character. And I thought that she's interesting because she is around all these people that really forefront their identity. I mean, Peter 
you know, among them, but also her friends in high school. They're very conscious of like their familial history, what they are in terms of like what they do, if they work on the school literary magazine or if they're dancers. And she doesn't really have much identity. It only comes later in the book when she finally kind of decides that she's going to be a screenwriter or a writer. That's what gives her a sense of self because she doesn't have a family and everyone else is following what their family has dictated, but she doesn't. And I wondered if that was something you were interested in, like the influence of family or the forming of identity through family and what a character would be like if they didn't have that background, because she also lives with criminals. Yes. Well, very much interested in the forming of identity through identification with a community, which is something that Brand doesn't have access to because the communities she's part of are so dysfunctional and, you know, arguably criminal, so that she's left to either, you know, obviously she can identify as anything she wants, but in the sort of factor analysis, intersectional world of identities, when she goes down the checklist, she's, you know, very plain vanilla and just stuck in a horrible situation. And the horrible situation is unusual for someone of her background. So she just can't pigeonhole herself anywhere and doesn't seem to want to. She's also exploited a lot by her family and in some ways, I think by Peter. She's taken advantage of because she doesn't have such a strong sense of what her boundaries are. Well, she talks about the horror of her situation a lot. And at the same time, it's, I mean, is it all that unusual for someone to have to work every day after school in a family business? This is a story we've heard. It's out there. But she tells it from this first-person perspective where she's surrounded by middle-class people who don't have to do it. And without feeling sorry for herself in a sappy way, she's just aware that there's something wrong, just something inchoate and vague that she can't put her finger on yet that's just really wrong with this. Like in that Mo Tucker song about, I think, working at Walmart or Target or something where she's like, when I get my check, I know something's wrong, but she can't say what it is. (laughs) One of the things I really enjoyed about this novel is its California setting and the way that it sees California, I think in a way that captures the complexity. So from Brand's eyes, right, California is at once like a real place, but also kind of a fictional place, right? So it moves between this ersatz glitz of like kind of LA. I love the way that you describe Westwood and UCLA, for example, as someone who went there and just like, (laughs) it feels incredibly (laughs) accurate, as does the moment when they go swimming in the ocean and you describe them using Dawn soap, basically, to scrape like the tar off of their feet. I was like, that's a detail that only a person who's actually been to that (laughs) beach would tell you. But at the same time, Bran sees this kind of like ersatz glitz, but there's also real beauty. There's moments that she's very much struck by the kind of beauty of her natural surroundings. And so I wanted to talk to you a little bit about what California means as a setting for this particular novel, but also as kind of an ex-Californian, what California means to you. I have a friend who's English, like from England. She lives Mm -hmm. in like Tacoma, Washington now, and I've known her for a long, long time. And she always says the striking difference between Europe and America is that the nature in Europe isn't very impressive, but the man-made stuff is 
gorgeous. And in mm. America, it's the exact opposite. You have this <laughs> unbelievable nature with man-made things that just, you know, make your eyes bleed, right? And so there's that tension where you have an artificiality that's like a thin veneer over a really otherworldly beauty in California. It really is one of the most spectacularly beautiful places and spots that you can imagine. As everybody knows, it's very famous. There's a lot that went into it. I mean, I was born there. I was born in Corona and had a very, very strange experience going back there when I was in my early 30s. I had not been back there since I was 13. So I went back like on a first date with a guy. Our first date was to drive from Philadelphia to San Diego and back to visit a friend of his in San Diego. You know, why not? So, you know, I had a car, (laughs) saved him taking the bus. He said he wanted to go to San Diego on the bus. And I was like, don't do that. I'll drive you. (laughs) So, So we come into the Mojave Desert where I was born and suddenly I'm surrounded by little yucca trees. Mm. And I'm like, oh shit. I was so strongly like at one with Virginia, Tidewater, Virginia. I thought that was like completely where I'm from. And I see this, all this sand and these yucca trees, and it kind of looks like a construction site. And I realized this is it. This is actually me. I mean, it was an incredibly strong impression. You know, it uprooted me right there. I had thought I had roots in Virginia, and I did not. They were in California, but I had been uprooted from California as a child. And however, my grandma was still there in Santa Monica, and my uncle in West LA. And then later in Torrance, and there's parts of LA where I've I've never been, as I discovered only recently. Like a writer friend of mine was telling me she was in Silver Lake, and she sent some picture that had like a lake in it. I was like, "There's a lake? (laughs) An actual lake in Silver Lake? What? I had no idea." And even the copy editor was like, "We have been informed that people south of Santa Monica do not call it the PCH." And I was like. Dude, I have never met anybody from north of Santa Monica. (laughs) I mean, everybody I know in LA is basically from the hood. So that was told to me by, it was Minnie Driver, the actress, who when I told her (laughs) what parts of LA I knew, said, that's the hood. (laughs) I think she lives in Malibu. So LA, big place, right? But I know it with the sort of intimacy you get from having a really intense emotional involvement that's very fractured and fragmented and part-time. You're listening to the LARB Radio Hour. We've been speaking with Nell Zink, author of Avalon. We'll return to that conversation in just a moment. But first, we have this week's book recommendation. Happy to have Shelly Oria back on the line. Shelly Oria is the editor of most recently of I Know What's Best for You, Stories on Reproductive Freedom. And Shelly's here to give us a book recommendation. Hi, Kate. Thanks for having me. So happy to be back here. So I was thinking about your question. I have really weird reading habits, by which I mean I tend to read like a bunch of books at once. And sometimes just because Hebrew is my first language, sometimes there's even a book in Hebrew in the mix. 
not often, but lately I just finished a memoir in Hebrew, but we won't talk about that. But so just to say uh, a few of the books that I just started, because I'm always reading a bunch of books at once, are uh, by design books by contributors of I Know is Best for You, Stories on Productive Freedom, which we talked about when I was on the show a little while ago. So let me start with these. So the first one is... Alison Espak's new book, new novel, that it's her second novel. It just came out, I think, about a week ago. It's called Notes on Your Sudden Disappearance. And I mean, Alison is truly just one of my favorite writers on planet Earth. And I think uh, maybe the main reason for that is that she is one of those writers whose ability to be funny on the page does not compromise the sort of depth of her stories and the psychological sort of resonance. Um, it's such a unique combination. And so that's very present in her story. And I know it's best for you too. And it's uh, it's already just a few pages in, it's already very clear to me in this book. This novel is like a coming of age from the point of view of Sally, who lost her older sister, Kathy, when they were both teenagers, or uh, really, I think Sally was like a tween. And the book kind of... Um, sees her through, I think, what will be 15 years or something like that. And then another book by Ed, I know it's best for you, contributor, is Hannah Lilith Asadi's um, The Stars Are Not Yet Bells, which is the story of an elderly woman named Elle who has dementia, who sort of looks back on her life. And I think it sort of becomes kind of this uh, story of loss and of love, but I think also of memory. Um, in this really beautiful way. And Hannah and I have collaborated before, and even the, her piece in the book is a piece that we did together, an epistolary piece where we wrote letters to each other. Um, and the reason that I love Hannah's work so much and that I love collaborating with her is just she, she's such a lyrical, beautiful writer where the musicality of her language, it just carries the emotion of it in such a way that's unique to her. You can never mistake her for anyone else. She's a force. And then I haven't even started, but I just bought um, Saeed Serafiazadeh's new-ish collection. New is relative in publishing, right? I think it maybe came out like a year ago or something, but it's called American Estrangement. And, you know, I'm primarily a short fiction writer, but by way of like how I identify. And yet, I don't know, I've been on like, I've been reading, I haven't been reading collections in a little while now. I've just been on a streak of like, novels and maybe some memoirs. So I'm just really excited to be back reading a collection. And what I know of this book and and part of the reason beyond the fact that I love Saeed's work in general that I was excited about it is it sort of seems to be looking at different fractured relationships, I think mostly in the familial context, but kind of in all of them very much keeping in mind or, or at the backdrop is sort of our political and economic realities of this contemporary moment in American life. Those all sound great. Can I just ask you a question when you allude to these strange reading habits? So you read a lot of books at once. Do you actually finish the books? I always do, actually. Almost always do. It's pretty rare for me to abandon a book. I have to say I'm proud to say that sometimes I do, which didn't used to be true. I used to feel such a sense of commitment. Like if I start something is not okay in the world if I abandon a book baby, you know, midway or something. I used to feel like no matter what, I have to see it through. And I no longer feel that way. I feel like, you know, life is short, also long in other ways, but 
but also short. Um, and if, you know, we don't connect to a book, that's okay. Other people will love it. So I do let myself not finish a book if it's just not right for me. But I would say that's pretty rare. Nine point something out of 10 books I will finish. So usually I would be reading a bunch and then a moment would come when one of them just beckons me or grabs me in a way where I can't read the others anymore for a period. And I just finished that one. And then usually I'll go back to like reading a bunch. And then again, this will happen. So that's kind of the process. Okay, let's do one that I have finished just to prove the point that I just made to you. So Peter Ho Davies, A Lie Someone Told You About Yourself is a book that I was reading while I was editing. I know it's best for you. And that had such an effect on me because it's a novel. It's a story of a man's perspective of his experience of his wife's abortion. And I just think it's exactly, I mean, that's a whole different, longer conversation that that we can have, Kate. But I just feel like that's the kind of story that, you know, we're so profoundly and deeply missing in our cultural conversation about reproductive freedom and about abortion rights is like men's stake in it and, and men telling their own stories and men becoming involved. The character of the narrator in the story is part of his sort of processing of his grief and his experience starts volunteering at an abortion clinic. So yeah, there's just so much about that book that I that I love and that I feel is so important to our collective conversation and to this moment. Wow, that's uh, yeah. I don't I don't think I've ever read uh, about an abortion from a man's perspective. So that sounds really intriguing. Okay, shall I? Here's the test. Can you tell us the books and the authors again that you recommend? Yeah, I'd be happy to. Ellison S. Pax, Notes on Your Sudden Disappearance, was the first one I mentioned. Then I talked about Hannah Lilith Asadi, The Stars Are Not Yet Bells. Then we talked about Saeed Serafiezadeh, American Estrangement. It's a short story collection. And lastly, we talked about A Lie Someone Told You About Yourself by Peter Hodes. Well done. Thank you so much, Shelley, for coming back and recommending those books. Thanks so much, Kate. Lovely to be here. That was Shelley Oria. Her latest anthology that she's edited is called I Know What's Best for You, Stories on Reproductive Freedom. You're listening to the LARB Radio Hour. We now return to our conversation with Nell Zink, author of Avalon. I think when people write about Los Angeles, it's it's often more steeped in like certain ideas or received images and notions of the city and not so much just as a tactile place and also certainly not as a working class place. So this, and also not so much as a place that that has, a, the, the roots are to agriculture. You know, so even that she's working on this plant farm you know, and the and the labor that she does there and this kind of way she's handling all these plants and having to, you know, scrape off the fungicides on them to pass them off as organic and just, yeah, torrents in general. It, I, it's not somewhere I see rendered in fiction um, very often. So I, I really appreciated that. And I felt like that that idea of like the received place kind of comes up when they go to Compton. You know, they, they're going yes, to Compton consciously. this image. Yeah. Because Peter wants to see Compton because he's such a cerebral person. He would rather see something he's heard about, read about. And, and at the same time, he has no concrete expectations for it. Whereas my, uh, my personal experience of L.A. is, uh, you know, very much tied up with my Uncle Charlie, who died only recently. And moved. he moved there in 1955. 
and so he there were all these places in um, all over all over at least that part of LA where he could remember like riding dirt bikes and shooting jackrabbits <laughs> you know where, where there used to be nothing at all uh, but uh, I was going to say there is uh, I can think of a book that does uh, focus very strongly on the agricultural aspects of LA and that's the sellout by Paul Beatty which is oh, an you amazing know, farming novel. in its way yeah. Actually, that's a great transition because I I wanted to ask you about, and Beatty is is one that I think about in a similar way, though I think he's more forthright about it, about how humor functions in your writing. Um, Because there are moments when it's, and I I really struggle to to, um, come up with how to describe it because it's not exactly deadpan. Like the, the jokes that happen sometimes in your novels, they are... It is clear that you're intending for it to be humorous, but it's not that kind of like boom boom. Um, so, can you talk a little bit about um, you know? And we've even heard it in your in your conversation right now. Like you're a very funny, like kind of dryly funny person. Um, so, I'm wondering just how humor functions for you in your writing. You know, I I wish I knew. I, I mean, once. When I was living in Israel, I went on this field trip with the Hebrew school, the Ulpan, and mm. I tripped over uh, like this loose, this dumb loose ring that was between two posts near the ground and fell with my head straight on a rock, a big rock, like bam, rock meets head. And um, I, w- I was not unconscious, but I couldn't see and I couldn't breathe. Something like, like like lying on the ground, blind, and hyperventilating, like wheezing in. And I swear to God, the first thing I said was like, I, I, like I wheeze in and I say, maybe that just opened my third eye. And then I wheeze in again and make another bad joke. It was like the, my lizard brain, the most basic function of my um, nervous system is to make jokes. So where I got that, I don't want to know. Um, I, I don't want to say my life, my early life was as tough as brands, but uh, yeah, <laughs> I, I don't know. I don't know. Um, I, I, I can... I can write without humor, at least think I'm, I can think I'm doing it and people may still find it funny. It's, um, I write and and do everything as far as I can tell with so much ambiguity that um, Mm. it's just really hard for me to know exactly what the reaction is going to be. Enough reactions are so enthusiastic that I, I am, you know, encouraged to stay public with it. <laughs> Another way of asking this question is like, do you find life funny? Like, you know, there's there's certain parts of like, especially the the parts that are tough, you know? I was, I was talking with um, a friend of mine who's a writer in Berlin yesterday about this, Rebecca Rukeyser. She has a novel mm. coming out um, next month. And uh, she was talking about how um, she was always taken, uh, always uh, seen to be a funny person until she went to the Iowa Writers Workshop where like nothing she said could raise a smile with anyone. (laughs) Like just everybody was earnest. It was the culture. And um, the literary scene in Berlin, she said, is is equally earnest and it's kind of driving her crazy. Um, 
you know, she like wants to like open some kind of salon for people that, you know, don't think you have to um, be just like totally emotionally, um, you know, openly touched by everything that, that, that you can like move to a level of abstraction and have some aesthetic mm. distance and maybe notice when things are ridiculous. And, and I was talking then today with my boyfriend, who's a very, um, you know, a, like a war-worn, a battle-hardened um, environmentalist. And I was saying, you know, I don't actually know any environmentalists who aren't funny, not, not here in Germany at least. And he said, yeah, you have to have black humor you know, you have to have a dark, dry sense of humor to be an environmentalist because it's just, you know, always such a joke. You know, you work so hard for so long to get the simplest thing done. And then just like the sucker who is born every minute comes along and destroys it in a second. Um, and I'm not saying you have to laugh to keep from crying, but I, I mean, life is incredibly cruel and tragic and horrible, and um, and that's also a central theme of this book. That that horror is uh, used exploitatively as entertainment, and the, and these three crazed young people are trying to find a way out of that trap on a meta level in this book, where I use elements of like really bad shit, shit happening to to keep people looking at the book because we all know that's what makes them look at the book. It's the car crash. I also think in this book and, and maybe in, in all of your writing, there's something about that I feel reading your fiction that it it doesn't seem like it's, it seems like you'll just let a thought exist and not, you know, polish it too much or anything. There's a real off the cuff quality that I think gives the book its own momentum Am I, is that a totally wrong assumption? Uh, you know, are things like really plotted out and really worked on? Or do you also give yourself a lot of credence just to invent and invent? I mean, you're kind of scaring me because people will um, bring the, sometimes criticize me saying um, it doesn't seem, Wall Street Journal guy said underdone or something. And I was like, oh no. I mean, it's a first, supposed to be a first-person narrative by like a 19-year-old, but okay. I don't mean underdone at all. I don't mean underdone at all. I mean, um, like the kind of imagination, like I mean, like that people bridle their imaginations and that they write towards genre and like these kind of things that get really lifeless because it's like they're right. They're either so sentimental or sincere or they don't reflect this idea of a mind that is like allowing itself to fire on all cylinders you know, that, that yeah, things become very like pigeonholed in fiction, especially. And that when you pick up a book that feels like someone has pulled off the, the you know, whatever bounds and let themselves go, it's like incredibly exhilarating. That's what I'm talking about. Well, thank you. They, um, I mean, for me, it's kind of an ethical issue. If I'm going to spend my time writing a book and then you know, use up other people's time trying to get them to read it. You know, even even critics or people in the industry, if if I'm going to do this at all, I want to do it in a way that only I can do. Um, there's just, to me, no legitimate reason 
to have people invest, you know, money and energy and paper in creating something, you know, in producing a work where I have uh, written to some kind of pre-established pattern, like, you know, that's that's been done and it's been done so well also. You know, you can have the ambition to write like uh, like Calder Laxness, except, you know, what would be the point? There would literally be no point. Life is not that long. People should just read some Calder Laxness. Um, whereas if I, if I let, I mean, it's not like I'm doing, um, you know, surrealist, uh, just you know, automatic writing, but if I let myself say what I want to say, um, for one, I learned something about myself in, you know, by this sort of dialectical method of just seeing it on the page, reading it and, and thinking, oh, what was I really trying to say? And then I end up saying like the opposite and then and it keeps moving forward that way. If you look over your fiction or even at, at the end of writing a novel, kind of being left with this feeling of like, oh, you said what you wanted to say. Do you notice recurring are there kind of like recurring themes for you that you're picking up on um, a, a recurring message that you are like getting across? Uh, do you, do you feel like that you have learned something essential about what you, how you see the world through what you write? I would say, say yes, I do feel I learn about myself and sometimes about the world or I learned the limits of my own knowledge, um, but the themes have definitely, they definitely changed. They um, like, I mean, in the wall creeper, um, one of the central things was uh, this phenomenon I'm always noticing, let's not and say we did. I don't talk about it so much anymore because it's not something people want to hear, but just that people, um, there are all these words out there that are invested with really positive connotations, things like things like beauty, and so since, you know, the function of the petty bourgeoisie in modernity is to make a virtue of necessity, even if people have never seen beauty, they'll just take the thing they like best and call it beautiful. Some, sometimes you, you, there's, Doris Lessing talks about a lot about trying to keep away from the, you know, the second rate to try and focus your attention on things you really think are good. I mean, but that was a theme back then, which, uh, you know, this is what, eight years ago at this point. No, I, I think I wrote it. It came out eight years ago. In this novel, in Avalon, I was playing a lot with ideas about the aesthetics of fascism that have been going through my head for 20 years, ever since I read a book by Klaus Teveleit, which is spelled like th uh, Thuleit, <laughs> like T-H-E-W. E L E I D. Um, he is known in America. I mean, people have told me they've they've read his books. Um, but he wrote a book called Male Fantasies about the aesthetics of um, proto-fascist writers in the twenties. Like, um, and and there's there's so much that's informative for for feminism and for the aesthetics of of men and women in that book and and just the notion that uh, fascist aesthetics have an appeal, a sort of timeless appeal that people are just drawn to authority and power. And how can you, uh, uh, you know, as you try to, to, to set up your life so that authority and power don't play a role in it, you know, so that freedom predominates, 
um, how can you create art that is about freedom rather than about authority and power? I love that. I think that's actually a great place to end. We've been speaking with Nell Zink, author most recently of Avalon. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you. It was fun. Thanks for listening to the LARB Radio Hour. Subscribe to our show on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, Spotify, or wherever else you get your podcasts. If you like the show, please rate us on Apple Podcasts to help us get the word out. And we'd love to hear from you. The producers of the LARB Radio Hour are Medea Ocher, Kate Wolf, and Eric Newman. Our executive producer is Alan Minsky. Our sound engineer is William Broaden. Editorial production by Jake Levins. Our intro music was written and performed by Imogene Teasley-Vladen. Teasley-Vladen.